0: We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to This Day in History class a show that rides the rails of history every day of the week. I'm Gabe Lusier, and today we're looking at the culmination of a decade-long construction project that changed the shape of New York City and brought a new level of sophistication to mass transit. The day was February 2nd, 1913. New York City's Grand Central Terminal was officially open to the public. The terminal doors were unlocked just after midnight, and over the next seven hours, more than 150,000 people from all over the city would pass through them. It had taken 10 years and $80 million to construct the sprawling transportation hub, and many New Yorkers were understandably eager to see the finished product. In fact, Many visitors on opening day didn't even ride a train. They were just there to check out the long-awaited new landmark. The huge turnout took railroad workers by surprise, with one remarking to the New York Times that, quote, never before had the public been known to take such a keen interest in the opening of a railroad terminal. Before the construction of the Grand Central we know today, the location at 42nd Street was home to an older steam train station that first opened in the 1870s. Known as the Grand Central Depot, it was built and operated by famed industrialist and railroad tycoon Cornelius Vanderbilt. The depot had two tracks and accommodated trains from three distinct rail lines running through and around New York City. Over the next three decades, the depot was gradually expanded and updated to better accommodate the growing number of commuters. In the year 1900, this larger Grand Central, now known as Grand Central Station, was reopened with four tracks located just beneath Park Avenue. This setup isolated the messy steam engines below ground, allowing the city's increasing road traffic to pass over elevated bridges without interruption. Unfortunately. The subterranean tunnels were poorly ventilated, and passengers whose trains were delayed were often subjected to suffocating heat, steam, and smoke. These hazardous conditions quickly soured the public's opinion of the newly revamped station, but it wasn't until two years later that New Yorkers would swear it off for good. The turning point came on January 8, 1902, when a devastating crash in the Park Avenue tunnel claimed the lives of 15 people and injured dozens of others. Public outcry was swift, and in response, the city passed legislation banning the use of steam-powered trains anywhere south of the Harlem River. The collision highlighted the need for a more substantial renovation, and by the end of the year, the station's owners had settled on a plan to make it happen. The initial idea came from a civil engineer named William John Wilgis. He recommended tearing down the old depot and replacing its underground tracks with a new electric transit system, one that could safely operate without producing exhaust fumes. He cited the London Underground as his proof of concept, as the system had already been using a deep-level electric railway for over a decade without issue. Vanderbilt's grandsons, William and Cornelius III, championed the idea of going electric, especially since Wilgus had also provided a plan for how to pay for it. He reasoned that the railroad could finance the entire reconstruction just by selling the air rights for developers to build residential and commercial buildings above the underground system. That stroke of genius earned Wilgus the job of chief engineer for the new electrified Grand Central. He hired two architecture firms to help bring his vision to life. Reed and Stern, and Warner and Wetmore. Working together, the firm settled on a Beau Arts design for the new terminal, a grandiose French style of architecture characterized by formal symmetry, lavish interiors, and classical elements such as columns and terraces. Planning officials also took the opportunity to correct the station's name. Because trains no longer ran south from Grand Central, the hub was now the end of the line, which technically made it a terminal, not a station. Construction on Grand Central Terminal began in the summer of 1903 with the demolition of the existing station. From there, a new double-level structure was built on a whopping 69.8 acres of land, the world's largest train station at the time. The main concourse was 275 feet long, 120 feet wide, and 125 feet high complete with a towering white marble facade. The inside was even more extravagant, featuring sweeping arches, 90-foot-tall transparent walls, and an expansive ceiling mural, depicting the constellations of the Mediterranean night sky. More than just a pretty face, the terminal also boasted a highly efficient circulation plan. Realizing that long-distance travelers would have suitcases in tow, the designers kept staircases to a minimum instead opting for a series of ramps that stretched all the way from the train platform to the street. Another design innovation were the terminal's so-called kissing galleries, special elevated alcoves away from the main flow of traffic where arriving passengers could pause to greet the loved ones who had come to meet them. These clever, thoughtful touches didn't go unnoticed by the public or the press. In 1899, the New York Times had called Grand Central a quote, cruel disgrace. But after glimpsing the new and improved terminal on February 2, 1913, the Times quickly changed its tune. It now declared, quote, The Grand Central Terminal is not only a station, it is a monument, a civic center, or if one will, a city. Without exception, It is not only the greatest station in the United States, but the greatest station of any type in the world. Despite its warm reception, Grand Central eventually fell into disrepair after a major uptick in highway use led to its gradual neglect. As the decades went on, even its famous ceiling became tarnished by cigarette smoke. By 1945, some people were already calling for the building to be torn down, But thankfully, cooler heads prevailed, and the terminal was granted a reprieve. Then, in the 1960s, several high-profile New Yorkers, including former First Lady Jackie Kennedy Onassis and architect Philip Johnson, banded together to create the Committee to Save Grand Central. The group succeeded in preserving the terminal's landmark status, ensuring that it could never be removed from the city skyline. By that point, there wasn't all that much worth preserving, So beginning in 1980, a $100 million restoration began, eventually restoring the historic monument to its ornate, bustling old self. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider keeping up with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks as always to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again soon for another day in history class.